Well, as I um, stand here this morning, I'm aware that some of you might have got caught in the rain on the way here today. Though, uh, if this were the town that I grew up in, where my parents live, there, there's a chance we would all have got our feet wet getting to the church. And uh, if it uh, was where my cousins uh, live in Carlisle, we would most definitely probably be wet by now. You may have seen the places in Cumbria where bridges are destroyed, surging rivers have flowed along roads, had the people of Keswick and Cockermouth and Carlisle, who had been flooded just a few years ago, and then seen new defences built, each questioning what of the future. Where will they spend Christmas? What will happen in the next few weeks, the next few months? All because of the deluge that has come upon them. A river in flood is a powerful force. In spate, it may well destroy the objects that we make. Flattening fences, floating cars away, or even an armchair. Sweeping the street free of not just litter, but the litter bins too. And yet as the rain stops and the levels fall, we find the wider natural landscape generally untouched. Perhaps the surging water removed a tree or shifts some stones downstream, depositing them at a bend in the river. But the most extreme weather of the last, not just hundred years, but, or even thousand years, but five thousand years, extreme weather does not flatten the mountains or fill in the valley, does it? It takes a great amount for that to happen. The Victorian era in the 20th century started to give humanity that ability to, to really prepare the road. Yes, the Romans did it in the past. They built the aqueducts. But for really moving land, it takes machinery. In the early 1990s, when I first moved to Hampshire, the M3 was being extended at Twyford Down. And uh, a cut was making, uh, being made in the, in the chalk landscape. And uh, that cut that many protesters would have called a scar was much like what a hundred years earlier navvies had done as they built canals and laid railway track. But this one was six times the width. Massive machinery. Such work, flattening of a hill, could not have been thought of in the first century in the same way. 
as John the Baptist talks, he could not possibly imagine the scale we are now able to build roads. But for all our technology, such an endeavor is still that. It's an endeavor. It's hard work requiring many people and large machinery. Each work together as a team to complete the task. The Baptist speaks out to the population, giving a call to action. Prepare the way of the Lord. And the reason for the call to prepare the way, the reason for a change need to be brought to the landscape, is given in that introduction. We're not just given a time period and told to work out what year it is. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, and so on. We are told who are the names of the people who are oppressing God's people. It's declaring that the Romans have rulership over the promised land. It's saying that there has been conflict and injustice. It is naming them. Naming the people that are preventing the people, the people of God, from being free. It highlights, too, that this is not simply a distant authority, but the land has been carved up. The land that should be one, the people that should be one, have been split in four. They are not able to live as they should They do not have a king descended of David. And something has to change. And this introduction continues. As Luke names the high priests. And this is not just saying, well, who's running the church at that time. It's not like saying the moderators of the URC just now or John Ellis and David Grosch Miller. It doesn't name them because he wants you to send them a little letter or to challenge them on something. It's so that you can say what the time of ministry is like, what the rulership of God's people is like during the time of John the Baptist. I know that as ministers come and as ministers go, you look back and say, oh, such and such a thing happened when that minister was here. It's the same for God's people in Israel. And they would be looking back and saying, the chief priests, they weren't great. Maybe you'll be saying that about me in a few years' time. I don't know. But 
It's a way of identifying that the religious life in the Holy Land is not holy. And so John the Baptist comes, and he is the antithesis of the rulers and the high priests. He is an antidote to their poisonous style. He does not dress in a wealthy manner. He eats an unusual diet. And more importantly, he proclaims a need for repentance because the way of the world needs to change. The well-known promises of the Lord are yet to be fulfilled. And so people come to hear what he has to say about it. But for John, a mere promise of changing is not enough. And he baptizes them in the River Jordan. And the baptism is a symbolic washing away of the old self. And it might remind the people of the ancestors coming through the Red Sea and of the Jordan on their journey from slavery to the promised land. But it was not a ritual normally undertaken by the Jews. It was in their tradition to some extent, but it was more normally performed by Gentiles who were wishing to convert to Judaism. That so many people are coming who are Jews that are wanting this baptism reflects the state of the society. They are people who have gone far from the faith and now they want to come home. There's a sense in the community of Israel that God's way has been lost. John stands as a lone voice, not just in a physical wilderness outside of the city near the river, but the wilderness of a society who are far from God. And this speaks of the position of the church today. The church, at least, should be crying out in the wilderness. We should be proclaiming, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Come and change yourself such that the world may be changed. We are the ones that find themselves in a wilderness calling repent and be baptized. We well recognize, I would hope, that the wider population do not com commit themselves very commonly to living God's way. And that as we approach Christmas, there seems to be a pushing out of the Christ element. We have a society of consumers, often consuming far more than is our fair share. We do not always seek what is fair, just, kind, or loving. We don't seek it of others or of the planet. 
but we choose instead what makes our life easier and cheaper. At the climate summit in Paris in the last week, as the governments have gathered from all across the globe to try and discuss the issue of global warming, it reflects that many know that the world is wrong, that there are serious issues there. But how much is the resolve to do something about it? Does each nation repent of where they are? Or do we adjust just a little? The danger for the church, as we say, repent in a quieter voice sometimes than others, is that we allow society to wash us with the contaminated flood water. That we are the ones that are changed rather than introducing the world around us to the cleansing, life-changing love of God. But the risk of going out there and declaring it did not worry John the Baptist. He had a message to proclaim, a message from God, which he wanted to communicate most urgently. He wanted to share it with as many people as possible. He would travel the whole region around the Jordan, proclaiming that the change must come. Are we always ready to play our part, to step outside the door and say, change is needed? John prepares the way for the coming. But that Isaiah prophecy that he shares is not simply about him doing the work. It is of a person issuing a call to arms for us all to be engaged within it. For us all to pick up our shovels and our picks. For us all to pick up our instruction book and bring the pieces together that will see significant change, that will see construction, that will see the road straightened, the valley filled in, the mountain flattened. Make straight the road. Encourage people to live new lives let them know of God's salvation.